Hi, this is John Schenck. Yep, it's time again for Progressive Spirit, and this week the topic is sex. My guest is John Gregg. He's the author of Sex, the Illustrated History, Volume 1. What I wanted to do was create a greater perspective for all for, for all cultures so that people could see the world's variety of approaches to sex and, and know that it wasn't just one perspective to, to hold on to, but um, I wanted to offer a positive contribution uh, for more choices for all people uh, and cultures of the world. Stick around. Sex is next on Progressive Spirit, progressivespirit.net. Stay with us. For the Pacifica Radio Network, the Public Radio Exchange, PRX, and from the studios of KBOO in Portland, Oregon, this is Progressive Spirit, progressivespirit.net. I'm John Schock. Today, we are going to talk about sex, complete, with illustrations never before seen on the radio. Sex, the Illustrated History, Volume 1, begins a daring exploration of human sexuality from the ancient to the modern world. Revealed are sexual practices and beliefs previously omitted or obscured from all historical telling. In a scathing condemnation of religion and its control of sex, John Gregg explores complex relationships between spirituality and sexuality. The supremacy of the mother goddess throughout most of human existence and her relatively recent fall is detailed in both word and image. These pages share graphic, erotic artworks and explicit literary excerpts painstakingly culled from the hidden treasure trove of cultures throughout history. Sex, the Illustrated History, Volume 1, traces sexual attitudes from the transcendent to the bizarre throughout the world's cultures. The often explicit illustrations are linked by historical and anthropological content, inviting the reader to experience sexuality through varied and often shocking cultural lenses. Over 300 images have been gathered by John Gregg, the author, in his travels and in his studies of world cultures, an encyclopedic tour of the sexuality of humankind. That's according to John Gregg's website about sex, the Illustrated History, Volume 1. What really brought on the Reformation, one of the main things was that all of these Greek statues began to be uh, revealed from early archaeology, not real archaeology, but at least they, they came out of the ground, and people saw all these nudes for the first time. They had been repressed uh, to have any kind of sculptures of nudes or paintings of nudes and things like this. All of a sudden, these artists in the early 1200s uh, saw these, these statues and said, oh, well, the human body is a pretty beautiful thing, really. And uh, paintings began to appear, and, and uh, a whole new sexual... Uh, approach began to appear at the same time and all these beautiful renaissance paintings that we see of um, of nude women they, now they had to be very careful they had to say they were gods and goddesses and and they had to hide what they really were because the church was still very powerful and at the same time during during the reformation actually is that is when the witch burnings are so the catholic church is reacting against this change in society and trying to keep women repressed and at the same time, the Protestants are coming up in this period also and saying to the Catholic Church, you've got it all wrong. You can't control people in this way, and 
they're not basically the the Protestants don't refute the um, basic tenets of sexuality that the Catholic Church came up with, but they do challenge the authority of the Pope. They challenge the idea of uh, priests and things like that. At the same time, what happens is the is the printing press comes out, and that allows books to be printed, all sorts of books. And women are encouraged to read along with everybody else, and particularly by the Protestants. And so these these things culminate in women getting a little more rights and moving toward the kind of uh, society that we have today where women are, in quotes, considered equal. My guest is John Gregg. Uh, he is the author of Sex, the Illustrated History Through Time, Religion, and Culture. Uh, he is an historian, a writer, a researcher, educator, and traveler, has had a lifelong fascination for the beliefs and practices of people worldwide. He has taught world civilization, anthropology, American history, and Native American history and culture at the University of Florida, the University of North Florida, and other universities. He's lived, worked, and traveled extensively in Asia and North and South America, studying religious and cultural practices throughout the world. He's with me via phone from Santa Cruz, and we're talking about his book that is part one of three, uh, Sex, the Illustrated History Through Time, Religion, and Culture. Welcome, John, to Progressive Spirit. Thank you. I'm so happy to be here. That's quite a biography. <laughs> yeah, you're quite a guy. I'm very inter- and, and quite a fascinating book, and this is just part one of three. Uh, tell me about uh, the book as a whole, its scope, and, and, and how it fits into the three parts. All right. I guess I, my background, you went into it pretty well, but I did spend a lot of time in India uh, studying Indian philosophy and Tantra, and I'd always been really fascinated by how um, sex was perceived in different cultures, and studying Tantra in India particularly brought that out it, as a contrast to the yogic system, which is kind of a celibacy system, a system that separates men and women. And then when I contrasted that to my own upbringing as as a, as a, as a upbringing as a Christian, um, it was even more of a contrast because the Christian Church, because of Catholicism for about a thousand years at least, tended to put sex as an evil, something to be avoided if possible. And the best way to get to heaven was to become a monk or a nun, to be celibate. And so I thought those were extremely important contrasts for humanity to look at and to understand that there's not just one sexual perspective in the world, but that there are literally hundreds, perhaps thousands, um, according to the culture that you happen to grow up in. And this first uh, volume of your series, Sex, the Illustrated History to, Through Time, Religion, and Culture, uh, takes us uh, from ancient um uh, cultures all the way up through, um, well, medieval period, I guess, well, even into the Protestant uh, uh, philosophies. But uh, what are your next two volumes going to cover? The next two volumes, uh, the first, the second volume covers Asia, um, North America, the indigenous peoples of North and South America, Australia, Africa, and the South Pacific. One one of the authors that you mentioned that uh, you've worked on is uh, Michel Foucault, uh, History of Sex in the 1950s. Uh, you mentioned him a number of times in your book. Uh, what was the impact of that book, and, and uh, what is new in yours? All right. The, that book was really one of the first attempts to study sex as a history, and throughout cultures. He did try to go through many of the cultures of the world. Unfortunately, he was very limited by the time period that he lived in and what he thought he could say in the 1950s. As you know, our country was still suffering from um, a great deal of puritanical background at that time. That's the time when Hugh Hefner was beginning to put out in 1952 Playboy for the first time, shocking American culture, shocking Americans. Masters and Johnson came out with their studies on American sexuality, uh, again, shocking America. And from that point onward, America began to to move into a more open approach to sexuality and to the different sexualities. And here I mean um, 
homosexuality, LGBT, uh, things that, that Foucault was not able to discuss in his time period. And that's been actually one of the shocking revelations of my book that I didn't know would would occur was that uh, in the majority of human cultures through time, bisexuality has played a large part. And most people are quite unaware of that. Yes, because we see the rest of this through our own current, uh, when I say we, I guess I'm just talking about America, views of sexuality which are pretty limited, really. Uh, As I'm looking back through your book and looking at cultures across time, uh, we are the unusual ones in some respects. Is that right? Oh, I believe that that's very true, yes. Um, For instance, when you look at the ancient world, um, Mesopotamia, Egypt, uh, moving through Greece and Rome, uh, they were basically fertility cultures. They believed that their gods had sex <laughs> and enjoyed it, mm-hmm. and therefore they were free to enjoy sex themselves. And actually there were sex festivals um, every month or two in ancient Egypt, in Babylonia, in Rome, in Greece. They, they, they were noted for their, for their great bacchanals. There's sex festivals and uh, to different gods and goddesses, uh, Aphrodite and, and such, that they uh, continually experience a sexuality in their culture. Only with the coming of Christianity, about when we became powerful, about 300 current era, uh, did we see a change in the Western world where sexuality became something that was hidden and actually put into the category of sin. Before that, sexuality was quite open in all of the, what we call the ancient world. So you say three, uh, 300, so that's uh, about when uh, Orthodoxy and the, the uh, Catholic Church or the Christian Church became connected with uh, uh, Empire and Constantine. That's exactly correct. That's right. 300 is, is traditionally the date that Constantine made Christianity the state religion, and from that point it has the power actually to uh, begin to take over the world uh, both physically and uh, uh, psychologically and philosophically, and it does so. And we we enter a totally different period in that time where uh, all of a sudden the Christian church, in perhaps partially in reaction to um, the licentiousness of Rome and them wanting to distance themselves from that, and partially because of the uh, uh, taking on the Hebrew past in the Old Testament and its um, uh, view of women, uh, sex becomes an actual evil, something to be avoided, and women actually becomes becomes something uh, becomes totally second-class citizens who are not given any rights in society and held down uh, really until the. 13th, 14th century, when we began to have the the witch burnings, it gets to such an intensity that women are actually considered to be so dangerous that we better burn them at the stake. <laughs> yeah, so, yeah. So there's a real very link different from a culture like like uh, ancient Egypt. You know, one of the things that the the anthropologists that discovered ancient Egypt were Victorians, and when they saw a culture that was celebrating sex with statues of erect penises. Uh, pictures of erect phalluses all over the place. They simply ignored them. They did not put them in their text at all, uh, believing that they were too shocking for Victorian morality. And this has actually come down to us all the way to this time period because since they neglected it, it was a tradition to neglect such pictures until very, very recently in time. And people thought Egypt was this asexual culture where actually they were totally a fertility culture celebrating sexuality all the time. And I find this in many, many cultures of the world that, that are simply ignored by the Western view uh, because it was too shocking to, to bring to the public. You're listening to Progressive Spirit, and I'm speaking with uh, John Gregg. Uh, He's the author of Sex, the Illustrated History Through Time, Religion, and Culture. So let's talk about some of those illustrations. Your book is filled with illustrations. Tell me about some of the sources, particularly, let's go start with ancient Egypt. How did you find these uh, illustrations? (laughs) Very laboriously. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I, I started on the book really over 15 years ago, and... I started first with my own collection. I, I visited India and Peru, and I took uh, paintings. I took uh, 
photographs from archaeological temples and sites in India where sexuality was very open in the in the ancient period. Um, then looking to all, as I went through all cultures of the world, I had to go through contacting museums and Wikipedia, uh, antique galleries worldwide. Um, I had to get permission from all of these different sources when I could find uh, erotic um, uh, paintings and sculptures. And sometimes I got permission, sometimes I was ignored. So it took a lot of research and a lot of writing to go to all these different places to try to find original pieces that I could use because I really wanted to illustrate what, not just through writing, but I wanted people to be able to see what other cultures saw when they when they viewed their own sexuality. I wanted people to be able to see what what they did, how they did it, how they um, approached sexuality. And I thought the pictures, you know, we say we have the old phrase, the picture is worth a thousand words. Well, in some senses this is true because you can actually see how the culture viewed their own sexuality. And I show you even like seal paintings uh, or uh, uh, seals of ancient Babylon where you would, would rub them on a piece of clay, you know, to get a visual image or uh, ancient uh sculptures and ancient paintings and things like this that I thought would illustrate for the, for everyone what these cultures actually viewed when they thought of sex. Well, let's go back to some of the, start with some of the earliest ones. Uh, what are some of the earliest images of, uh, of erotica or sexuality that you discovered? Well, the very earliest go back, uh, d- depends on what you mean by sexual, but if you, if you go back about 30,000 years ago, we had these Venus figures. Uh, these these uh, women with large breasts and large hips that were fertility figures. And we see these, we don't see figures of men from a period of, say, 30,000 years ago to like uh, 10,000 years ago. We see all women, these big, buxom women who were fertility goddesses. And um, we don't know at this period of time whether there was a matriarchy, whether women were actually part of the society, whether they were in control of the society or not. Uh, or we just know that they that, that women that the women uh, the figure of the woman must have been worshipped. But when we get to the period of writing, about eight thousand years ago, when when writing starts, within all of a sudden we see and agriculture starts. All of a sudden, we clearly see that men are in control, and men are taking over the world, and women become basically second class citizens all over the world. So it's really that agricultural revolution that made a big change in terms of women's status and uh, and the repression of sexuality. Well, that is a major theory, at least. As I say, because there's no writing before eight thousand years ago, we can't say what actually occurred. So we don't know whether women were in charge or not, or men were in charge. We just don't know. But we do know, with as you say, with the agricultural revolution. At that point, it's obvious that men assume control. From that point, we see we see male statues of male gods, not just female gods, but male gods, and we see a fertility thing going on where the male gods are in control and the female gods are their cons- consorts, and uh, together they create a fertile world. They keep the rains coming, they keep the crops growing, they keep the animals reproducing, they keep the people reproducing. So that's what we see at that point in time. And from that point onward, men have retained control uh, in human society everywhere in the world. And it's really that connection of you're talking about the control, the the uh, loss of power, of agency for women, and um, how did how how what is the let me ask you the question in this way: What's the relationship then between the the loss of agency for women and sexual repression, or is there one? I would say there's definitely a connection. One of the things we see at this period in time is that the the hymns to the gods, the statuary, the society itself, like with the laws of Hammurabi I'll get to in a minute, um, show that woman basically becomes a chattel. She no longer has any very little or has very little power of her own 
There are a few priestesses and uh, high positions in society that women can attain to. But for the common woman and even for the wealthy woman, she is basically a possession of her father and then a possession of her husband. And um, we don't see her having any rights at that point. In many societies, not even the right to testify in court uh, or to, to, uh, to inherit. Very often her children are the inheritors, uh, and they, they're supposed to take care of her. Um, in some societies, we do see women able to inherit, like Rome, such as that. But uh, Greece is a very good example, for, for instance. Here's a society where we think of um, uh, we think democracy and logic and the theater and so many of these great concepts come from, and it, it seems to be such an egalitarian, such a wonderful society. Well, in Greece, women were second class, not even citizens, hardly. They, they were, were called citizens, but they had to stay at home. They couldn't move about freely in public. They had no right to vote. Um, they had no right to education whatsoever. They were basically chattels, complete chattels uh, for the men of their society. And we think, though, in Greece that uh, sexuality was um, freeing, right? I mean, that you think of uh, all of the, the nude paintings and all of that kind of thing, that you'd think that that was a little more open. Yes. However, the, the, the Greeks were great appreciators of the human body and great appreciators of sexuality. They, they lauded sexuality and thought very highly of it, uh, and as I say, celebrated it with, with um, constant festivals all the time to the gods, where there was tre a tremendous amount of sex. This sex, however, was not open to the good, <laughs> it quotes the good women of society. The sex was between men and prostitutes, and men could go out and uh, with as many prostitutes as they wanted at any time. So it was agent. The agency in this was men, in terms of the sexuality. Uh, women were not necessarily their own agents, and it wasn't necessarily the, whatever sexuality was in Greece. It wasn't for women. Well, um, largely. <laughs> One little aside here, dildos were very popular in Greece for the women because they had to stay home and be by themselves, and the women and the men often ignored them because they weren't even competent to, to talk to them because they didn't have any training or education. So men went to high-class prostitutes to, to talk and to discuss philosophy and discuss life, and uh, high-class prostitutes called hatare, who were very, very well-trained, but most women were not. And most women had to stay at home. And there was even a thriving trade in, in dildos in, in ancient Greece because so many women seemed to, to need them. I'm speaking with John Gregg. Uh, he is the author of Sex, uh, the Illustrated History Through Time, Religion, and Culture. Well, talk about patriarchy then and, its, and, and its, uh, how it manifested itself and changed sexuality and, and how that might be seen through art. All right. Since, since the patriarchy was, was in control in ancient Babylon, in ancient Persia, ancient Greece, ancient Rome, and even moving into the Middle Ages with, with Christianity, there was an absolute control of, of men. So they made all the rules and regulations. They, particularly men, were very interested in making sure of who their children were the people that they were going to pass on their rights and their privileges to. And this is one of the reasons that women were so curtailed uh, way, way back from the Code of Hammurabi, uh, um, ancient Babylon. Um, it places women in a second-class position where they're controlled by their fathers and then by their husbands for their entire lives. And there's never a moment where they have the right to do basically anything. So this w was to continue on all the way, for instance, the, the great society of Rome that we know so much about um, because it gave so much to our modern civilization and because the city of Pompeii that was buried in, in lava um, or, or lavic ash 
we know the everyday life of these societies, and we know that sexuality was everywhere. That, that in, on, in the streets there were there was graffiti. On the walls there were paintings. When you went to the to the baths, the famous baths, there, there were pictures of people in different sexual positions. And this wasn't just for men, though. Uh, when the men and women went to the baths at a different time of day, but the pictures were there when the women were there with their children. Sex was not a hidden thing; it was an open thing, but it was controlled by men. Speaking with John Gregg, he's the author of Sex, the Illustrated History, Volume 1. We'll continue our conversation about this taboo topic of sex after the break. This is Progressive Spirit, progressivespirit.net. I'm John Schuck. Stay with us. Listening to Progressive Spirit, progressivespirit.net. I'm John Schock. My guest is John Gregg. He's the author of Sex, the Illustrated History, Part One. Now let's move ahead to Christianity. We started at the the beginning of the conversation, and you said it at around 300 uh, CE, uh, in the time of Constantine and the time of the Church becoming connected with the Roman Empire, uh, that uh, religion, the Christian religion in this case, really had an effect on sexuality, making it evil and sinful. Uh, what is in it for Constantine as an emperor to... to uh, adopt this attitude towards sexuality? Well, I don't know. Constantine is a very interesting figure, for one thing, because he seems to have stayed a pagan for the rest of his life, um, basically worshiping the sun. So he was looking at Christianity apparently for very practical reasons. Christianity had grown tremendously in the empire in those 300 years since the death of Christ, primarily because it was promising something that had never been promised before. And uh, that was everlasting life in this heaven that basically Paul, one of the the later disciples of Christ, had created. And he had come up with the idea that, that Christ had given his life, or that God had given the life of his Son to provide this heaven for everyone. And you have to remember that the Roman Empire in those days, basically 50%, 40 to 50% of the people were slaves. And it was not an easy life. <laughs> the slavery was very difficult and very hard, and they lived miserable lives for the most part. And Christianity offered them something totally different. It said, you come and join us we'll reward you with this wonderful heaven when you die and so slaves in the early period were a very very big part of the roman empire uh and very big part of christianity also and at the same time roman matrons and women were attracted to christianity because of its um love theme and it's also its promise of immortality and Slowly, the empire began to have a great, great many, perhaps uh, over 50% of its people believed in Christianity. And Constantine was looking for something to unify the empire, something to pull it together, something to make it into a, a continuing empire. And he chose Christianity very deliberately, apparently, for those for that purpose. The strange thing was that, that 
as I said earlier, Christianity decided that it was going to place sex in the category of a sin, basically, um, because prostitution was so available in the Roman Empire, for instance, uh, the cost of a prostitute was about the same price as a cheap glass of wine. And it was a very sexual culture. And basically people could have sex, uh, men, <laughs> again, could have sex whenever they wanted it. For instance, our, our word fornication comes from uh, the forci, the, uh, the columns of the Colosseum, where when men were aroused during the, the brutal uh, gladiatorial combats, they could go down to the arch, the forci, and uh, have a prostitute for the price of a cheap glass of wine. And so this was the common thing all the time, that you went down to a prostitute and you went back to the games again to watch the, the brutality of the games. And so the Catholic Church was reacting against all of this and having a, a Greek background, a lot of the early writings were in Greek, and having a Hebraic background, they viewed women as basically second-class citizens. Um, and so women became associated with, with Eve in the Western world, because uh, Christianity took up the, the Old Testament, and Eve was, was the original sinner, and so all women were considered to be uh, under suspicion as being dangerous to entering heaven, and sex as being dangerous to entering heaven. And so the church more and more created a society where it separated itself from uh, a, a liberal view towards sexuality in reaction to Rome and became a uh, basically a society that wanted to celebrate uh, chastity. For instance, the, the Catholic Church makes a, a system where sex is actually forbidden for a large part of the time. Yeah, you'd mentioned for uh, certain days of uh, like 40 days before Easter or 40 days before Christmas, um, sex wasn't allowed and, and, and those types of rules. Yes. What the church did was to limit sexuality for everyone for a period of a thousand years from, say, 300 to 1300. There was a rule that sex was forbidden on Sunday, on Wednesday and Friday. And that reduced the days from 365 to 215. Sex was forbidden 40 days before Christmas and 40 days before Easter and after. And you couldn't have sex for three days before communion. And communion was quite often in the Middle Ages. So what, what they really did was to limit sex to approximately 50 days a year. And not only that, but they said when you do have sex, you should put a sheet between you with a strategic hole in it so that there's no touch and no enjoyment of sexuality when you're having sex. And so this was, a, uh, <laughs> this was supposedly a rule for the common people. Now, could people maintain that? No, sex is ubiquitous, and people wanted to have sex. So what it really did was to create a, uh, a control where people – were considered guilty all the time, and they had to absolve, get absolved for their sin of having sex or even wanting sex. So the church basically created a revolving door, constantly bringing back its patrons to, to be forgiven for this sexuality that is part of human nature. And it, it has resulted in just this uh, uh, psychology of shame that is developed uh, for people who are religious uh, through today. Exactly. I, I, I certainly agree with you. Um, shame was a central part of the Catholic Church's philosophy regarding sex, that it was a shameful thing, and it, it has lived down... You know, I, I say I say it was really bad from the year 300 to 1300, something like that, for a thousand years. Then the Renaissance came along and things altered a little bit, but we still live. As I said earlier, we live with that in America today. Until very recently, there were all sorts of laws forbidding different types of sexuality. Um, 
in, in America, and our views have, have uh, uh, even today of many people are really controlled by that sexuality. The Catholic Church also said you could only have one position, you know, the missionary position, the famous the face-to-face position. Um, that was another sexual rule that the Catholic Church came up with. And our society has been been dealing with that for in the West uh, for two thousand years now. And and uh, the Protestant Reformation you talk about, take a, take a second and talk about that too. Uh, changed it a little bit, but really didn't uh, make a big uh, uh, impact in changing sexuality or women's rights for the better. The Reformation was an amazing occurrence uh, because. All of a sudden, what what really brought on the Reformation, one of the main things was that all of these Greek statues began to be uh, revealed from early archaeology, not real archaeology, but at least they, they came out of the ground, and people saw all these nudes for the first time. They had been repressed uh, to have any kind of sculptures of nudes or paintings of nudes and things like this. All of a sudden, these artists in the early 1200s uh, saw these these statues and said, "Oh well, the human body is a pretty beautiful thing, really." And uh, paintings began to appear, and and uh, a whole new sexual uh, approach began to appear at the same time. And all these beautiful Renaissance paintings that we see of um, of nude women they, now they had to be very careful. They had to say they were gods and goddesses, and and they had to hide what they really were because the church was still very powerful. And at the same time, during during the Reformation, actually, is that is when the witch burnings are. So the Catholic Church is reacting against this change in society and trying to keep women repressed. And at the same time, the Protestants are coming up in this period also and saying, the Catholic Church, you've got it all wrong. You can't control people in, in this way, and, and they're they're not basically the the Protestants don't refute the Bible. They don't refute the um, basic tenets of sexuality that the Catholic Church came up with, but they do challenge the authority of the Pope. They challenge the idea of uh, priests and things like that. And so, as you as you just stated, sexuality, the approach to sexuality doesn't really change that much. It does change some, because what happens here in this period is that the cult of the Mother Mary in Catholicism has grown bigger and bigger and wider and wider, and is now, like today, is one of the main cults of, of the, uh, the Catholic popes. Um, and here Mary is exalted as the mother of God and becomes basically a goddess again. We see a return of the ancient goddess. And uh, for that reason, womankind begins to be appreciated a little more and gets a little more rights during the Renaissance. At the same time, what happens is the, is the printing press comes out, and that allows books to be printed, all sorts of books. And women are encouraged to read along with everybody else, and particularly by the Protestants. And so these, these things culminate in women getting a little more rights and moving toward the kind of uh, society that we have today where women are, in quotes, considered equal. Of course, you and I both know that women still get 70% of the pay that men get for the same job. So we can't really call it a society of equality, but we at least we allow them to vote, and they can work in Western society. In some societies of the world, they're not even allowed to go out of the home still. But uh, that's the situation that, that we're still dealing with from our historical past. And this, these changes, these uh, the right to ro- the vote, these movements are not because of religion, but in spite of it. Oh, yes. Very definitely, I would say that. Because um, the, the Catholic Church has never, uh, the, the, the Christian Church in general has never uh, done anything to give women equality. In fact, they've, they've actually made rules, you know, that the women can't be priests. Uh, and many Protestant faiths until very, very, very recently Women couldn't be preachers. They couldn't be part of anything. They were just supposed to um, guide in the home and take care of the man, and that was their job. Let's turn uh, for a second to Islam. Uh, if you're just joining us on Progressive Spirit, my guest is John Gregg, and he has a fascinating book called Sex, 
the illustrated history through time, religion, and culture. Uh, now, I have had uh, people say, women, feminist Muslims, say that Muhammad made things better uh, for women. Um, uh, but you, uh, I'm wondering what you think about that. What was the impact of Muhammad on women's rights as well as sexuality? Well, I would say the opposite of what you just said. <laughs> All right. Um, you know, uh, I, I think you, you'd you have to say that Islam is a sex-positive religion, at least for men. They've always placed sex as one of the God-given joys of culture. And the, the Islamic culture views sexuality uh, uh, very highly. They praise women for their beauty. They've written books like The Perfume Garden by Neswali about uh, sexuality. So far as Muhammad himself, uh, he praised female sexuality. He says a woman has a right to sexual satisfaction. And this is probably where you're getting what, what, what you heard from these other women. He says if you marry four wives, they must all be treated equally. And he says that sex should, be, should not be quickly like the birds, but should be slow and delaying. And this is for the woman, so that you know, sex shouldn't be this wham-bam, thank you, ma'am, but a, a slow, gratifying experience for both people. And so Muhammad was, was very enlightened in that way. However, what Muhammad did do was to have a harem of his own, and unintentionally he may have damaged the status of women by doing this and by secluding women away again off the streets. And he, and he also declared that in war, women were chattels. So that every Islamic victory brought thousands of women to be held as slaves by their new Islamic masters. Islam, in fact, in, in its early days, it was very open and progressive. Muhammad said, search for learning, though it be as far away as China. His capital, or the capital of Islam in Baghdad, was open to scholars from all over the known world. And progressive Islam really changed the world in that period. They simplified mathematics, bringing in the Hindu numerals. Today we call it our Arabic numerals that allowed for a simple math that we still use today. Um, they spread Chinese paper making, and they saved the ancient Greek classics. Many of the ancient Greek classics that the Christian world was allowing just to rot away because they didn't, they didn't want to continue knowledge, the search for knowledge. But what happened with Islam is around the year 1100, it went into a very conservative phase. It's in really, it really entered a dark age that it has not recovered from to this, to this day, where women were placed in an even more of a, a low position, and they became suspicious of the rest of the world and suspicious of knowledge. And then in the last 75 years, Islam has entered into an even more fundamentalistic phase uh, called Wahhabism, uh, which questions everything from the West, the immodesty, the licentiousness of the West, and has actually led to the terrorism that we have today. And that's one of the reasons I wanted to bring sexuality out into the open uh, and the view of women out into the open, you know, to create a greater perspective for all cultures so that they could uh, see the world's variety of, of approaches to sex. And see, um, I really question how can anyone have a perspective on sex or a woman's place that, that they think is the correct one, that they think is the only one. Uh, I wanted to provide a, a, a viewpoint where people could see that there are all these different ways of viewing it, all these different ways that societies look at sex, and therefore see that their one way is not the right way, but just one of the ways that the choices that the different cultures of the world make. At the very beginning of our conversation, uh, you talked a little bit about the tantric um, aspect within uh, with India. Um, uh, for example, the, the Kama Sutra. Spend a few moments on that. What was the significance of, of that? As you know, in, in ancient India, they, they developed the science of yoga or meditation, a way to contact what they believed was the, uh, the force of the universe, whether you want to call it God or just spirit or, or force of the universe. But yoga became very uh, male-oriented also because of the Hindu culture, because of the caste system, because of the way that they viewed women as being chattels. Um, most yogic systems 
I want to separate men and women and keep men and women separated, at least when you're at the ashram, when you're there, when you're practicing, when you're, and if you want to become a, uh, a truly ascendant, you're supposed to, to give up sexuality. So Tantra arose as a philosophy in opposition to that. Tantra believed that the whole world was made from sex, the energy of the sun on Mother Earth, the uh, is, is the creative force that creates everything, it creates evolution, it creates life. And so uh, Tantra said sexuality is good, and Tantra actually developed a way, an approach of, to the Godhead through sexuality where uh, people have long, intense, ritualized sex, viewing themselves as God and goddess making the world. Tantra became very important in India and created huge amounts of art, uh, to actually delineate all these different positions that they came up with to enhance their sexuality. The whole East had a very different approach towards sexuality than what happened in the West. They, they were more of a continuance of the ancient fertility uh, aspect that we saw in, in Babylon and in Persia and in Greece, in India, in China and Japan. Sex is a spiritual force. It's not uh, in in the West. We sex was divided, and to be spiritual, you couldn't be sexual. Sex was material on the material plane and kind of bad. Um, uh, the spirit was on the on the ascended plane of going to heaven of meeting with God. But in the East, China, Japan, they merged the two. They believed that to be a full human being to be fully realized, to be fully spiritual. Sexuality is a part of that. And they put sexuality on a very high plane. In, uh, in, in China, for instance, Tao was developed, which was like a, a Chinese tantra, a specific system for men and women um, enjoying their sex to the, to the greatest extent possible and moving to a spiritual level with it. And they also produced a great many um, paintings, as did Japan, uh, uh, making this sexuality into a, a high art form. John Gregg is my guest. He's the author of Sex, the Illustrated History Through Time, Religion, and Culture, uh, Volume 1, uh, we've been discussing. But in, in the upcoming volumes, you're going to specifically deal more with uh, China and Japan. Is that right? That's correct. Uh, what I wanted to do was create a greater perspective for all for, for all cultures so that people could see the world's variety of approaches to sex and, and know that it wasn't just one perspective to, to hold on to, but um, I wanted to offer a positive contribution uh, for more choices for all people uh, and cultures of the world. You were mentioning um, the Kama Sutra. They wanted to, to create a sensuality, a sexuality without guilt. Um, they developed numerous books and illustrations of positions and techniques the Kama Sutra is only the most famous of really hundreds of volumes that were written um, in Indian history about uh, sexuality, how to approach it, how to get the most out of it, what positions to use, what techniques to use. They developed sexual toys and like swings and mirrors and penis enhancements and pacing of strokes and um, all these things to make sex uh, last longer and be more enjoyable. And a huge number, a huge amount of literature was devoted to this and a huge amount of artwork uh, from Eastern cultures. And it was actually much easier for me to gather materials um, for the illustrations of the book when I was dealing with China and uh, India and Japan, uh, Malaysia, than it was to, to gather art in, in the West because much of that has been uh, confiscated by the Catholic Church or destroyed by the Church or uh, was in the possession of private collectors or inaccessible in one way or another. John Gregg has been my guest on Progressive Spirit. is the author of Sex, the Illustrated History Through Time, Religion, and Culture, a fascinating book. Uh, the website is sextheillustratedhistory.wordpress.com. Uh, is, is that how folks can get your book? Yes, they can, um, they can go to my site. That, 
that site and, and purchase the book through that, or they can go directly to my publisher, Ex Libris, or Amazon or Barnes & Noble. It's, it's basically everywhere. <laughs> All right. John Gregg, my guest, a fascinating book, a fascinating conversation. Thank you so much for being with me today. Thank you. Appreciate it. You've been listening to Progressive Spirit. Progressive Spirit is heard every week. On Progressive Spirit, you hear interviews with cutting-edge scholars, authors, and activists who have something to say about social justice, human flourishing, and things that matter. I'm always on the lookout for interesting guests, and the more non-mainstream, the better. I'm looking for people who are telling the truth and have evidence to back it up. No topic is too taboo. This is serious business living in the empire that is run by the deep state. We need freedom of the airwaves and the internet, and we need truth tellers to expose the lies of the criminals in high places. Progressive Spirit is formatted for radio and is distributed every week through the Pacifica Radio Network and PRX, the public radio exchange. I'm thrilled to add another radio station to the list of stations that carry Progressive Spirit every week. Welcome Alameda Community Radio, KACR 96.1. Folks in the Bay Area can listen to Progressive Spirit on Sunday mornings on Alameda Community Radio. Thanks also to the following stations for carrying Progressive Spirit every week. WETS, Johnson City, Tennessee. WEHC, Emory, Virginia. WPVM, Asheville, North Carolina. Cutstown University Radio, Cutstown University, Pennsylvania. KCEI, Taos, New Mexico. And WLRI, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. If you enjoy the show, ask your local public radio station or even your favorite commercial station to check it out. Consider adding Progressive Spirit to its weekly lineup. You can also catch Progressive Spirit on your favorite podcast app. If you like the show, please share it on your social media. The website is ProgressiveSpirit.net. Follow also on Facebook, Twitter. Progressive Spirit is produced in the studios of KBOO in Portland, Oregon, soon to be 50 years old. I'm John Schock. Be well.